Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a very interesting show for you today, I think. In our second segment today, we will continue our talk with Professor Sherrod Malalu about the subject of the Indian subcontinent. He's got some interesting stories to tell, and he will tell them in our second segment. KDVS's own news reporter, Sakura Saunders, will join us in the third segment to talk about the documentary, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which will be airing tonight at 8 o'clock at 194 Chemistry on the UC Davis campus. Uh, this is a documentary that I've had a chance to see. It's well worth taking a look at it. She'll be here to talk to us about that in the third segment, at which point we will also be joined by one of our special correspondents over in Iraq, Mr. Akbar Crazy Eddie Chalabi. We have some good news and some bad news for you on today's show. Uh, Let's start with some good news. The Federal Appeals Court in Denver, Colorado, has upheld the government's Do Not Call Registry this week. Um, it's working its way up. Uh, when we talked to Jeff Kravitz on our show about this some time ago, Jeff confidently predicts this will go to the Supreme Court, and that uh, and he seemed to feel that it'll be overturned. I hope that uh, Mr. Kravitz is wrong on that. So, um, so far, so good. And um, my producer, Mr. McMillan, handed me a very funny email related to this topic of uh, of telemarketers that I thought um, I thought I should share with you. It went something like this. Hello? Hello, this is AT&T. Is this AT&T? Yes, this is AT&T. This is AT&T? Yes, this is AT&T. Is this AT&T? Yes, this is AT&T. May I speak to Mr. Byron, please? May I ask who's calling? This is AT&T. Okay, hold on. At this point, I put the phone down for a solid five minutes, thinking that surely this person would have hung up the phone. To my surprise, when I picked it up, they were still waiting. Hello? This is Mr. Byron. May I ask who's calling, please? This is AT&T. Is this AT&T? Yes, this is AT&T. This is AT&T? Yes, is this Mr. Byron? Yes. Is this AT&T? Yes, sir. The phone company? Yes, sir. I just said you were AT&T. Yes, sir, we're a phone company. I already have a phone. We're not selling any phones today, Mr. Byron. Well, whatever it is, I'm interested, but thanks for calling. So they persist for a while, and he gets the the supervisor. He gets the supervisor on the phone. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Byron. I understand that you were interested in signing up for our plan. Do you have that friends and family thing? Because you can never have enough friends. And I'm an only child, and I'd really like to have a little brother. <coughs> All right. Now for some bad news. Uh, Tower Records, Sacramento's uh, most famous homegrown company, filed under Chapter 11 in U.S. Bankruptcy Court uh, last week. Oddly enough, it's, everyone knows it's Sacramento Corporation, but they're headquartered legally in Wilmington, Delaware, for tax purposes. Um, it's kind of weird. I was in Buenos Aires in August, and um, 
God, I was down in the Tower Records. It all seems so familiar. I hope that uh, it's not the end for a local giant, um, but we'll see. And uh, further bad news over in the state of Wisconsin, it looks like uh, Howard Dean uh, went down in flames. I don't suppose that had anything to do with all the media coverage ever since pre-Iowa that seemed to be, uh, uh, does Howard Dean have the temperament to be president? And is he still beating his wife? Uh, may have eventually um, done him in. We've been covering this, of course, in the last few weeks. I'm, I'm convinced that they did in Dr. Dean. And now it pretty much comes down to a race between uh, John Edwards and John Kerry. And I'll tell you right now, it's going to go to John Kerry. It's been quite clear that that is the favored uh, choice of the movers and shakers in this country. So in November, it's going to be John Kerry versus George W. Bush. The only drama in this is going to be who will he choose for vice president? Will it be John Edwards trying to pull in Southern voters or will it perhaps be uh, General Wesley Clark, who is believed to have some Southern appeal? I don't know. Like everybody else, we will watch that one evolve. But what's most interesting to me about this potential John Kerry versus George W. Bush race, if there is anything interesting about it, is the fact that uh, both of these guys are not only Yaleys, but both of these guys are Skull and Bones. Now, Skull and Bones is one of the numerous secret societies they have at Yale University. They only take 15 Yale juniors a year to join this elite club, so there are only something like 800 Skull and Bones people in the entire world. Now, George W. Bush's daddy, remember him, George Herbert Walker? He was a Skull and Bones. So, for that matter, was their grandpa, Senator Prescott Bush. Of course, he wasn't a senator then. He was a student at Yale. Prescott Bush is famous for having grave-robbed the skull of Geronimo, the legendary Indian leader, and bringing it back and placing it in the secret headquarters for Skull and Bones. I understand from uh, Bruce Bronstein, one of our L.A. correspondents, that uh, Prescott Bush, well, I guess that the Skull and Bones was finally shamed into returning the skull a couple of years back. Um, I hope so. But Skull and Bones actually was even asked, I believe Tim Russert even asked George W. Bush about this. He has nothing to say. John Kerry, like all the rest of the Skull and Bonesers, has nothing to say about his membership in the organization. They are, after all, sworn to secrecy. This promotes a lot of speculation about uh, this group, this group of elite people in an elite university who seems to be extremely overrepresented in the halls of government and particularly in the United States intelligence agencies. What I find especially curious is that John Kerry and George W. Bush were only two years apart. I believe that uh, John Kerry was Skull and Bones 1966, George W. Bush was Skull and Bones 1968. I'm not sure about Bush on that, but I believe there's two years difference between them. This is really, I mean, you know, people talk about elites, and um, this certainly is an elite organization. I called the one friend I have, uh, who's a Yaley, uh, uh, Yaley graduate, and said, you know, what is the deal here with Skull and Bones? She said, I don't think it means anything. But she didn't know anybody that was a member. Uh, people she knew had turned down various secret societies. So it's a mysterious uh, mysterious subject. There's an interesting book out on it. Well, there's more than one, actually. One was by Ron Rosenbaum, author and columnist for the New York Observer, who was actually a Yaley classmate of George W. Bush, although he apparently was not a contender for the Bones because they only want the creme de la creme to join. Uh, but uh, we're going to come back to that. I find that to be a fascinating subject. There is something to this story, Skull and Bones. The uh, uh, These people are ecstatic in the organization because... 
you know, no matter who wins in November, there's going to be a lot of skull and bones people in whichever administration is operating out of Washington. All right, let's go to some miscellaneous items here. Um, it was a bad week for the beef industry, according to the current issue of The Week magazine, because hospital records revealed that diet guru Dr. Robert Atkins had a history of heart disease and weighed 258 pounds at death. However, his widow said, my husband's health problems late in life were completely unrelated to his diet. Uh-huh. Because as we all know, diets have nothing to do with health. And from the Only in America file, which I've come to distrust slightly uh, out of the same magazine, but this one's, this one I'm going to take a chance on. I, I think this is most likely true. Apparently an American Airlines pilot in a very Gary Larson-esque episode, used the public address system to ask all Christians on board his plane to raise their hands, then suggested that non-believers make good use of the flight by talking to them. Pilot Roger Fiddleson apologized after several panicky passengers asked if he was planning on delivering them to heaven prematurely. He later explained that he was moved to make his announcement after a problem with the plane's brakes inexplicably solved itself. I felt that God was telling me to say something, he said. Well, maybe so, but I wish he would have said something different. But apparently things have been going pretty well for the nipple adornment and piercing business. Retails nationwide have reported that uh, Janet Jackson's breast-bearing Super Bowl act has sparked a boom for them. Uh, reportedly, Florida distributor Russ Johnson said that uh, since the incident, he sold more than 100 sunburst nipple shields like Jackson's. There's just no accounting for taste. I did like the comment in Spain's El Mundo, uh, which noted that Anglo-Saxon morality is hard to understand. Um, it was stated in this editorial that, you know, if this incident had happened in Spain, people would have laughed. But in America... Millions were scandalized and are demanding that everyone connected with the breast-bearing be punished for polluting the airwaves. They asked, is America still a nation of Puritans? And although there appears to be an imminent investigation, uh, or investigation is ongoing uh, as regards Janet Jackson's breast, <laughs> I note that the nudge-nudge, wink-wink investigation of Iraqi intelligence failures is proceeding as well. Of course, the results won't come out till after the election. Having followed this whole thing unwind, I, I'm just amazed at how the CIA is coming forward to say, well, okay, you know, our intelligence isn't perfect, when a year and a half ago, they were adamantly saying that, you know, no, what you're saying about Iraq is not true. They were actually at odds, and the Pentagon and Dick Cheney kept saying, well, then do, the, do, the, do it again until you come up with a threat uh, that we can, uh, we can act upon. They just weren't going to accept evidence that there was not a threat. Politics um, is a strange business. But I wouldn't hold your breath for any earth-shaking results out of that inquiry. Let us put in a plug once again for Uncovered, the whole truth about the Iraq War, the, um, the Robert Greenwald production, which pretty much, um, you know, goes through step by step the deception that took place before the war in Iraq. We follow this for you contemporaneously. If you want to review, that's as good a one as I can think of. And we're going to return to that story. I hope it doesn't get swept under the rug, although there's some big brooms out there in action. 
Now, in business news, Comcast has launched a $66 billion bid for Disney, which would make it the world's largest media corporation, even bigger than AOL slash Time Warner. This is bad news, people. Um, you know, we don't need more media concentration in this country. This is a pet peeve of ours. And I wanted to mention briefly something that I'd um, I talked about just in passing on a previous show about this wonderful article in Vanity Fair two months ago, The Making of Time Warner, that basically outlines how this deal went down. It is It is a truly amazing article. Time Warner went into this merger because apparently two guys, Jerry Levin of Time Warner and Steve Case of AOL, threw in together to make it happen. The most amazing thing is that Levin, by normal reckoning, headed the much larger corporation. And yet somehow, due to the fact that when they came to assess how much each company was worth, they took the number of stock shares out there and multiplied it by the value of those stock shares and decided that they were roughly equal. Well, we all know that during the high-tech bubble, technology stocks were vastly overrated. Their prices were way too high. Well, Case and other people realized there was going to be a major readjustment downward, and they decided they better move now to get a hold of something that actually had some bricks and mortar and real-life existence and grab it before the bubble burst, which is exactly what they did. But the amazing thing is how they convinced Jerry Levin to line up all of his people in Time Warner behind the merger. Well, the part that is the most amazing is that Steve Case basically came along, schmoozed Jerry Levin, and said, of course Levin would be the CEO of the new giant company, but Case, he would just be a chairman. But I'm not interested in being an operating guy, he told him confidentially. You understand this business, Jerry. If we merge our companies, you should be the man in charge. I work better at the strategic level. Now, what's amazing about this is this corporate pirate, Jerry Levin, basically stepped in, whipped whipped this deal into shape, went around all of his top people to make it happen. When they heard about it, they were like, you've got to be crazy. This is like a minnow swallowing a whale. But Levin was convinced he was going to be the big man in the new operation. And, of course, with about an hour to go, with it all lined up, Case just steps in and said, there's no way I'm not going to be a hands-on guy, Jerry. I never said that. What are you thinking? And at that point, his goose was cooked. If he backed out of it now, everybody would have kicked him and pummeled him and said, you idiot. So he went ahead with it. Well, they wound up kicking and pummeling him, calling him an idiot anyway. But after that, AOL owned Time Warner. It's a heck of a story. I probably should go over this in light of this whole Disney Comcast thing with someone that really knows business. We have a couple people we're going to bring on the show, I think, for that purpose. But it just amazes me that inflated stocks were used to decide what's your company worth, what's our company worth. Well, we're about equal, right? <laughs> My stock's overinflated times 10, and that means that we're equal. So, yeah, the minnow swallowed the whale. Amazing. Oh, where's Jerry Levin today? Well, he abruptly announced he was stepping down after the stock price of the combined AOL Time Warner plummeted 70%. <sighs> Steve Case, though, uh, although his net worth dropped by more than half, since 1999, he remains one of the richest people in America. All right, let's do three uh, three quick science stories here. Um, an appeals court has backed the continued study of Kennewick Man. We were talking about Geronimo's skull a few minutes ago. 
This uh, skull discovered near Portland, Oregon, 9,000 years old. It's been called Kennewick Man. It's very interesting scientifically, but it is not clearly not the skull of a Native American. But the local Indian tribes are claiming that it is, and they want the, the skull and other bones returned to them so it can be immediately reburied. Well, um, sanity prevailed, and a court said, no, we're not going to do that. This is valuable scientifically to, to help us determine uh, how these migrations took place into America. And um, it's going to remain in scientific hands where it belongs. And it appears that in the state of Georgia, after there was much hubbub about the state superintendent proposing the striking of the word evolution from Georgia's uh, scientific curriculum, replacing it with biological changes over time, it seems that perhaps maybe that isn't going to go forward after all. Thank God. Former President Jimmy Carter had harsh words for it and uh, said it was an embarrassment and exposed the state to nationwide ridicule, which indeed it did. So uh, I've got my fingers crossed that uh, we're not going to see more of this creationist nonsense in American schools. Now, in a very strange story out of um, out of India and London, it appears they've solved the mystery of why India's vultures have been dying off. And I think we mentioned some some months back on the program that um, the Parsi religion in India uh, disposes of its dead in towers where vultures and birds of prey are allowed to basically recycle the human flesh into the ecosystem. But um, carcasses have been piling up because the vultures are gone. Uh, there's been a devastating something that struck the population, and the large birds are just not available for this purpose. It's kind of a grim situation. Well, they've determined what it was that was killing the birds. Apparently, veterinary medicine has been using diclofenac, an anti-inflammatory, to treat various animals, and this drug turns out to be toxic to the birds when they eat the carcasses of the dead animals. Uh, diclofenac is better known to you perhaps as Volterin. It's probably the most common, uh, uh, the common brand name here in America. Fairly commonly used. It's been uh, used for a couple decades in India, Pakistan, and Nepal, and the consequences have been dead vultures. This apparently marks the first time that a pharmaceutical drug has been implicated in the decline of, of a large vertebrate species. So hopefully the use of this drug will be discontinued. Vultures have played an important ecological role in Asia, and they not only clean up human carcasses, they have, you know, forever they've been part of the natural cycle, removing dead livestock uh, from the scene. So this unfortunate situation has had some important economic, cultural, and human consequences. Let's talk a little bit more about Indy in our second segment with Professor Sherrod Malalu, continuing our talk that we had with him a couple of months ago. This is going to be interesting. Stick around. This is Radio Parallax. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento, and I'm Douglas Everett.